As we approach the Word of God this morning, would you bow with me for a moment of prayer as we ask the Spirit to be our teacher? Father, we thank you for the gift of your Word. We thank you that you have given us your Word because you love us. It is useful, it is inspired by you, and it is useful to train us, to teach us, to change our directions, to correct us, to rebuke us, and to equip us for every good work. Lord, we need your spirit to be good listeners, to have soft and tender hearts towards your word. We pray, we thank you for the promise that your word will not return to you empty or void, but will accomplish what you've set out to perp- and purposed for it. So we know that your word is going to do your work in each one of our lives. And we ask now that you would, by your Spirit, lead and guide us into all the truth. In Jesus' name, amen. If you are able, I'd ask you to stand for the reading of God's Word, which this morning comes from Mark's Gospel, Mark chapter 15, verses 33 to 47. Friends, hear the word of the Lord. And when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour... Jesus cried with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, behold, he is calling Elijah. And someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine, put it on a reed, and gave it to him to drink, saying, wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to take him down. And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion who stood facing him saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, truly, this man was the Son of God. There were also women looking on from a distance, among whom were Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of James the younger, and of Joseph and Salome. When he was in Galilee, they followed him and ministered to him. And there were also many other women who came up with him to Jerusalem. And when evening had come, since it was the day of preparation, that is, the day before the Sabbath, Joseph of Arimathea, a respected member of the council, who was also himself looking for the kingdom of God, took courage and went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Pilate was surprised to hear that he should have already died, and summoning the centurion, he asked him whether he was already dead. And when he learned from the centurion that he was dead, he granted the corpse to Joseph, and Joseph bought a linen shroud, and taking him down, wrapped him in the linen shroud and laid him in a tomb that had been cut out of the rock. And he rolled a stone against the entrance to the tomb. Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Joseph, saw where he was laid. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. I know I'm jumping ahead a little bit. You think of coming to church on Palm Sunday. And we often think of, well, that's the triumphal entry. Think about what the choir just sang in Hosanna. Here's everybody with palm branches crying out, Hosanna is the Lord in the highest, the son of David. They're crying out, think of, but what was that to lead to? What was that to come? And I did preach on that when we came upon that passage in Mark several weeks ago. I thought it'd be best to keep going in Mark and not to go backwards. What do you think? And so... But that whole scene of Jesus entering Jerusalem in humility, in weakness, in vulnerability. Think of the expectations that people had. Here comes our king. 
He's to redeem us. He's to return to the city of David. He's to throw out those bad, big bad Romans and take over for us. And think of how their hopes must have been crushed and dashed as just several nights later he was seized, he was arrested, he was taken off, brought to trial, and here he is about to be executed. What is the meaning of the cross? And as I've titled this morning's message, what is the victory of the cross? How, what do we learn about the meaning of the cross? For just in the way of a practical principle, we can't just interpret it ourselves. It is not up to us to interpret the suffering of our Savior. How do we understand and submit to what the Bible, what the Word of God has to say to the Bible's teaching, not our own ideas or interpretations? And I think one of the places to especially look, and we want to look at this this morning, are some of Jesus' actual words from the cross. What we have here in Mark's account, and we'll also look at a couple of the words from the cross that Jesus uttered that are recorded for us in John's account. And we want to ask this question, what do we learn about the suffering of our Savior? For it is here that we have the deepest revelation of what theologians for centuries have called, have titled, the passion of Jesus Christ. The deepest revelation of the passion of Jesus Christ. Think about, when I say the word passion, what is the very first thing that comes to your mind? wonder what you think of and what we think of and maybe what the world and our culture thinks of when we think of the word passion. Is it kind of the world of sports where you kind of go, they played with great passion this afternoon. Look at the intensity with which they played that game. Or maybe you're thinking of a movie or something and you go, oh, romance. There's the Calvin Klein, whatever it's called and all that kind of, who knows, I don't even know what that's called. And you go, oh, such passion. Neither of those things are getting to the biblical meaning of the word. Because the word passion originally meant suffering. And that means what the Bible is telling us. And if the Bible is telling us, that's what we base our interpretation. This is how we must interpret it. We get our meanings from the Bible. The Bible is telling us if passion means suffering, and this is the deepest revelation of the love of God, We're learning here that deep love always entails deep suffering. Deep love will always mean deep suffering. The passion of Jesus Christ is that he underwent infinite suffering out of ultimate love. I think this idea of deep love always entails deep suffering was captured very well by C.S. Lewis in his book, The Four Loves. For C.S. Lewis writes, he says, to love it all is to be vulnerable. Love anything and your heart will be wrung and possibly broken. If you want to make sure of keeping your heart intact, you must give it to no one, not even an animal. Wrap it carefully round with hobbies and little luxuries. Avoid all entanglements. Lock it up safe in the casket or coffin of your own selfishness. But in that casket, safe, dark, motionless, airless, it will change. It will not be broken. It will become unbreakable, impenetrable, irredeemable. For to love anything is to be vulnerable. The passion of Jesus Christ is that he underwent 
infinite suffering out of infinite love for us. And we learn we're going to take a look at this account, the narrative of Jesus' suffering and death, his passion, and I want to look at it from two words. The two words are simply alienation and reconciliation. See, the Apostle Paul in Colossians chapter 1, it's very interesting when you read the letters of Paul, what Paul is basically doing is he's taking the realities from the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, and he's applying them to local church situations. And the Apostle Paul says, and you who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death, in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. See, we were alienated and hostile in mind because of our evil deeds, and Jesus Christ submitted to our reality, our reality of alienation he went through on the cross in order to reconcile us to God, in order to present us to God. Get this. Holy and blameless and above reproach. You know what above reproach means? It means above and free from accusation. That means he's reconciling us to God as one who is holy. I don't know about you, I almost never feel holy. Do you ever feel holy? I never feel holy. But yet, because of what Jesus did for us on the cross, he is able to take us and bring us to the Father and say, here are my holy ones. I present them to you, set apart for you, blameless, without blemish, and free from accusation. So let's take a look at this narrative, looking at these two words. The alienation of Jesus in order to reconcile us and present us to God. Take a look with me, beginning with verse 33. In verse 33, when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Some of the bystanders hearing it. In other words, the bystanders, they're watching, they're hearing, and they hear because this is not a crime, this is a guttural scream. They hear it and they say, behold, he's calling Elijah. And someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine, put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink, saying, let's see whether Elijah will come to take him down. And Jesus offered a loud cry and breathed his last. Now when we include the accounts told to us in the other Gospels, specifically John's account, when Jesus breathed his last, we read after this, Jesus knowing that all was now finished, said, and John writes to fulfill the scripture, I thirst. And a jar full of sour wine stood there, so they put a sponge full of the sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. And when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Looking at John and Mark, you've got these words from the cross. I thirst. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And it is finished. What do these words tell us about the alienation of Jesus, about Jesus, what the alienation that he was experiencing. See, we have to realize that at this point, when Jesus spoke these words from the cross, he had been on the cross for hours in the middle of the hot Judean day, going through utter agony and torture, physical, emotional, and spiritual 
such that we can't wrap our, 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 our minds around, such that we can't imagine. And so it's not surprising that Jesus would say, I thirst. And John adds for us that he's fulfilling the scripture, specifically the scripture that was out of Psalm 22, where the psalmist cries out, my strength is dried up like a potsherd and my tongue sticks to my jaws. You lay me in the dust of death. What we see here is Jesus suffering out of infinite love for us in obedience to the plan of God. He is fulfilling the word of God. He is fulfilling the scripture. See, every time the text tells us this is in fulfillment of the scripture, we need to recognize this is God's plan. This is what the entire second half of Mark's gospel has been all about. Remember, we've been saying that Mark structured his gospel around two halves. The first, asking and answering the question, who is Jesus? The second, chapters 9 through 16, what did Jesus come to do? And here you have the crescendo, if you would, of this, the climax of this. He came to experience infinite suffering out of infinite love. And so verses 33 and 34 say, When the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. Now what is the significance of that darkness? We need to recognize that that darkness is symbolic, is emblematic of what is happening to Jesus at this moment, the alienation he is experiencing on the cross. That what is being narrated for us, what's going on, is it's almost like describing uncreation. Jesus is undergoing a kind of unraveling, a kind of decreation, if you would. Why? Because he is bringing about, he is inaugurating in the most unexpected way imaginable. This is certainly not what everybody was expecting. But through the cross, he is inaugurating a new world. Think about what Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 5 when he says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. That happens through the cross. That is the victory of the cross. So Jesus is kind of experiencing this decreation, if you would. He is unraveling. Tim Keller tells it this way. He says, when the biblical writers discuss or describe lostness, eternal lostness, when they describe hell, much more often than the metaphor fire, which is sometimes used for hell, the metaphor that is used is of the outer darkness. Because God, the presence of God, is something that our hearts and our souls need, like the flowers need the sun. And if this very second the sun really went out, if right now the sun were to go out, really totally disappeared, we would all immediately be dead. So here is Jesus from the cross, crying out that he's thirsty, and crying out more directly, screaming, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And what it means is he is being plunged into the outer darkness, into utter alienation. His soul is being plunged into absolute darkness, and the physical world is even reflecting that. He is beginning to unravel. He's going down to spiritual destruction. And then he utters, John tells us this, he utters his final words from the cross. When he received the drink, he said, it is finished. And with that, he bowed his head and gave up his spirit and breathed his last. And the Greek word, it's one word for the Greek word, it is finished. And the Greek word is tetelestai. And the word is in a form that indicates a, a, an action that has been totally completed. 
And it comes from the Greek word telos, which means goal or purpose, the direction upon which everything was headed. So in other words, when Jesus says to Telestai, when he says it is finished, he means it is completed. He has reached his goal. He has accomplished his task, his mission. R.C. Sproul says of this, he says the significance of his entire life came down to this very moment. When he said it is finished, he was saying not just that his life was over, but that his mission had been fulfilled. The plan of God had been completed. His purpose in coming to earth and going to the cross was accomplished. And among other things, one of the things that this means was the satisfaction of justice, of God's justice. That's why it's very interesting when you look at the implications of the gospel. John puts it this way. When John is talking about confession of sin in his first letter, he says, if we confess our sins, God is faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And if you think about that, just kind of on first glance, that almost sounds a little weird, doesn't it? Wouldn't you kind of be thinking, if we confess our sins, God is faithful and merciful. God is faithful and loving. God is faithful and compassionate. But it says God is faithful and just. See, why would John say that? John is saying that because he's reflecting back on the fact that Jesus says it, the it being the justice, the punishment, the wrath of God that is completely satisfied. Which means God has received completely the payment for sin. Which means if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just. And there is no more payment for sin. It has been completed. It is done. Do you know what ought to be our favorite time of worship? And I would love for you to say the preaching of God's word, but not really. (laughs) That would just be fun. But your favorite time of worship ought to be the time where we are invited to come to confess our sins and repent and come before God. Because he's already been just. The justice of God has been exhausted on the cross. It has been completely satisfied. Jesus did not under utter, I'm close to finishing it. He said it is finished. Which also means implications. Let me try to apply it. If we are trying to, in a functional sense, finish the work of Christ by, you might be saying, I don't do that. By doing things like by trying to prove ourselves. By being defensive because we're defending ourselves. By trying to validate ourselves. I have to be a good enough husband, a good enough father. I stink as a spouse or I'm terrible or at this. If we're all worried and sweating and anxious about how well. If we're constantly trying to validate and prove ourselves by our performance. Functionally we are acting like Jesus' work on the cross was not enough. It is finished means he experienced, he submitted himself out of the plan of God to the alienation that was ours in order to reconcile us to God and to present us as holy. I'm going to keep repeating this till someday maybe I'll get it and we'll all get it. He presents us to God as holy, blameless, and above reproach. Why do we spend so much time trying to be good enough when we've already been declared righteous in Christ? He experienced the alienation that was due to us. 
Do we understand what he was going on when he, cried, when he screamed, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And when he said, it is finished, that is the satisfaction of justice so that we can be reconciled to God. Take a look with me at verse 38 because let me, let me speak on this, this aspect of reconciliation, the second word I want to focus on this morning. And I want you to understand the significance of this. Verse 38 says, And the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. So when Jesus breathed his last and cried out, It is finished. Immediately, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. Now why is that significant? Commentators tell us that if you went into the temple all you would find are barriers. Barriers everywhere. So in the words of one commentator, if you were a woman, for example, you could only go so far. Then no more. You can't come. It would be like, keep out. If you were a Gentile, you could only go so far. Then no more. You can't come in. If you were a Jewish male, well, you could come a little closer, but at a certain point, it would still be, you'd have to be a priest to come a little bit closer. And even then, if you were a priest, you still can't come all the way in because at a certain point, there's a veil. This curtain, a huge curtain that was 60 feet high, almost soundproof, so, so thick. And then only the high priest could go in there to the very pre presence of God. And even then, with his knees knocking, and once a year, for fear that he would be killed the moment he got in there. What does the temple communicate what does the temple reveal and speak to us? It speaks to us, stay away. No presence, no intimacy, no communion, no access. No matter how much sacrifice, no matter how many burnt offerings, no how much of a good life, you can't get in to union and communion with God until Jesus dies. And he gives up his spirit. And then the veil... And we're not talking it's torn like you would tear just a letter nice and neatly and gently. It is torn asunder. It is ripped from top to bottom showing that God himself does it as if he were throwing open his arms and saying, Welcome. Come in. Find your security, your safety, your refuge. The very thing that justifies your existence. Communion with the living God, as the divines of Westminster put it. Glorifying God and enjoying Him forever. Oneness with the living God is now available because of Jesus Christ. The very thing we were built for was communion. And that is now available to us. Jesus was barred. Jesus heard keep out. Jesus experienced get out. So we never have to fear that or experience that or even worry about that. The message of God is come in. In other words, it is finished. It is completed. You are now able to come in. So quit striving. Quit performing. This transforms and changes everything. See, this changes the dynamic of our living, our Christian living completely. See, we now no longer, we don't obey in order to finish the work. We obey because it is finished. It means we don't work very hard to please God, but we obey because He is already pleased with you. 
That changes the inner dynamic completely. You please Him not to get Him to be pleased with you. You please Him because He's already pleased with you. Do you see how that changes everything? Do you see how the cross transforms everything? How it impacts how we see and approach everything? And let me close with this, because it also changes one thing. Verse 39, we have something that can be very easily overlooked or missed. And I don't want to do that. Verse 39 says, and it almost reads like an aside. Mark just says, and when the centurion. Okay, pause there. Who was the centurion? He was the Roman, not Jewish. He was the Gentile Roman officer who superintended, was responsible for kind of carrying out, superintending the execution of Jesus. It says, when the centurion who stood facing him saw that it was in this way, he breathed his last, giving up his spirit, dying as an innocent man. He said, truly, this man was the Son of God. Now, why is that significant? Well, Mark began his gospel, chapter 1, verse 1, saying, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And he began to narrate for us the ministry of Jesus going to whom? First, the lost sheep of Israel. And now, what do we see? Mark is foreshadowing the mission of Jesus, the mission that we're about to give him, which is the gospel for the world. And he's seeing it because who is it that's acknowledging that Jesus is the Son of God? Who is it that is acknowledging that Jesus, the crucified Jesus, is the true king, not the Roman emperor, that this Jesus is the true son of God, not the Roman emperor. It is the Roman centurion. See, the significance of this is that this is foreshadowing that the gospel is for the whole world. Jesus, after his resurrection and ascension, will pour out his spirit. What does he say to his disciples just prior to his ascension? He says, you will receive power when the spirit comes upon you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria to the ends of the world. This is being foreshadowed now because who is it that is acknowledging that Jesus is the Christ? It's the Roman centurion. Beginning in Jerusalem, this reconciliation, the gospel which will be the means of the renewal of the whole world will go out to the whole world. And Mark is signaling it begins now. It's been inaugurated Now, good news, the gospel changes everything. Do we believe that? Is that good news to us? Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much. In fact, how can we begin to thank you for the the good news, which Paul says is the power of God unto salvation to everyone who believes, first for the Jew, then to the Gentile. We marvel at the fact, Jesus, that you experienced complete alienation in order to reconcile us to God. May we learn to live more and more of our lives in communion with you, in partnership with you, for your glory, enjoying you forever. In Jesus' name, amen.